Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, imagine suffering a traumatic brain injury that completely alters your sense of self. Suddenly you believe you're a cat. That's happened. Or you speak with a foreign accent. That's happened too. Or you play the piano like a pro without ever having taken a lesson. That's happened. It's rare, but neuroscientist Mark Digman, author of Bizarre, the most peculiar cases of human behavior and what they tell us about how the brain works, joins us to explain. The plight of five people aboard a missing submersible that ended in tragedy this week has captured a whole lot of attention right around the world. But there was a far greater loss of life at sea that happened in the Mediterranean last week when a migrant ship sunk with some 750 on board. 600 are feared dead. Many women and children. Tima Kurdi, aunt of two-year-old Alan Kurdi, whose drowning death in Turkey in 2015 sparked vows around the world to better protect migrants and not allow this to happen again, joins me to talk about why eight years later we are still turning a blind eye to their plight. But first, we unpack, or perhaps better yet, slice up a settlement this week between Canada Bread and the Competition Bureau over a long-standing bread price-fixing scandal. What does it mean? How does the Competition Bureau work? And what message does this send? We'll find out. Well, first up tonight, you may have heard the name Canada Bread in the news this week. That's because the company, now a subsidiary of Mexico multinational Grupo Bimbo, reached a settlement with Canada's Competition Bureau over a long-standing bread price-fixing scandal. The Bureau says Canada Bread must pay $50 million for arranging with its competitor Weston Foods to raise bread prices. The scam resulted in two price increases on products including hot dog buns and rolls, one in 2007 and another in 2011. At the time, Canada Bread was under the ownership of Maple Leaf Foods. It's now a subsidiary of Mexico-based Grupo Bimbo, which says it's considering, quote, all legal options against those responsible. Adam Burns, the Canadian Press. So that gives you an idea of what happened. As mentioned, Grupo Bimbo will pay a $50 million fine to settle those allegations over Canada Bread's role in the price fixing. Uh, Loblaw Companies Limited, which is cooperating with regulators, had alleged that the scheme was industry-wide, involving several retailers and two wholesale bread distributors spanning at least 14 years, beginning back in 2001. So this goes back a long time. There was an agreement, uh, sta- an agreed statement of facts filed in court uh, when Canada Bread pleaded guilty to four counts involving communications that took place allegedly between a former senior officer at Canada Bread and one or more senior executives at Weston uh, about 15 years ago and about a decade ago, which led to these two price increases. Um, What's interesting here is how long it's taken. Now, the Competition Bureau, Maple Leaf Foods, by the way, says it doesn't know why this has happened. Uh, It has no knowledge of any kind of price fixing. The Competition Bureau, meanwhile, said the, quote, record fine represented a significant milestone in the ongoing investigation. Um, And there is still more to come here. This investigation is ongoing. What did it mean for all of us? Well, allegedly, it meant that there was a $1.50 that had been artificially baked into the price of a loaf of bread between 2001 and 2016 because of all of this. Uh, Joining me now to explain and what this could mean for consumers and broadly is Jennifer Quaid, an associate professor and vice dean of research in the civil law section of the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. Jennifer, thanks for your time. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on. This is an interesting one because it feels like it's been going on, you know, forever because it it really has been. But what exactly happened this week? Well, this week we have the second 
party that has admitted to being uh, involved in this price fixing scheme, which, you know, started many, many years ago now, you know, the first uh, counts are relate to 2007, and the second counts to 2011. So what's significant, to my mind, uh, independent of the amount of the fine, and so on, is that now you have a second participant, and it takes two to make a conspiracy. Up until now, we basically had the first party come in uh, and say, this was going on. And no one else, you know, was willing to say, oh, we were part of it. So this is now with two admissions, you really, you do have a conspiracy. Now the question is, who else might have been part of it? For now, no one else is saying that they were involved. The first to tango here was Loblaw, right? They came out and sort of, sort of, did they blow the whistle on this and sort of said, this was going on and we want to come clean? Is that what how this began? Yeah, whistleblowing maybe not quite the no. right word only because <laughs> only because the no and and, and it's Maybe fair not. enough that people would think yeah. that but um be, they have they don't have clean hands either so what happened is uh there's there's an immunity and leniency program that the bureau uh, put together it, it's actually sort of jointly administered with the public prosecution service of canada because of course criminal charges are ultimately um handled by the prosecution service but what it's designed to do is to encourage um, those who participate in cartels to break ranks and to basically rat out their competitors. That's because cartels yes. are notoriously hard to detect. <laughs> not, not quite whistleblowing, more like uh, saving one's own own skin, so to speak. It, that's absolutely what it is. And normally what you expect to happen, but this didn't happen this time, is that one person comes in and gets immunity and then there's a stampede for everyone to get in line to get leniency. Uh, because if you're the last one and there are no chairs left, you might be stuck just getting the full-on punishment with no discount. So that's the playbook, but it didn't work that way this time around. What are, how widespread are the allegations uh, here? Because I gather there, I mean, at least according to uh, what, what, uh, what was said earlier on, that there are a lot of, lot of people involved in this, or allegedly a lot of people involved in this. Yeah. So, I mean, conspiracies of this type, so price fixing type conspiracies, we, we, we have some sense of, you know, how these things happen based on a whole series of international cartels that were you know, first discovered with, uh, for those who are old enough and remember with the ADM conspiracy, which was in, involved in, um, uh, I think it was uh, citric acid, but it was, you know, it was, it was the, the first, the food additive industry. And um, they figured out that competitors would get together often in parallel with other meetings that they had. And they sort of, you know, got a handle on, on the kinds of kinds of industries where this can happen. Usually it's a, a fairly uniform product and there's a fairly small number of players who can keep tabs on one another. So, you know, when you look at that and you look at the context of what's happened here, you can sort of see that, you know, bread is a, it's, you know, I suppose every baker will say my bread is different, but let's say, you know, from the consumer's perspective, it's, it's a fairly uniform product. And often we might, you know, switch brands based on price and so on. Uh, and uh, there are a small number of players who can keep tabs on each other. So this is, this is kind of, you know, how you would think these things would emerge. Now, is it, you know, how widespread? This is this is the question that I don't have the answer to because I don't see the evidence. But the suggestion is that it involves more players than the ones who've admitted that they've been involved. 
And I guess the again, you can correct me if this 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 term is the wrong one to use. But the smoking gun was that they were alleging, or at least Loblaw came out and said that there have been phone calls between yeah. these different participants saying, you know, you know, hey Jeff, it's two ninety nine this month, right? I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but there in fact was a phone call, and that that kind of changes the equation. It is. I mean, well. You know, one of the reasons why you want to encourage someone to come in and why you're willing to offer immunity, because immunity means, you know, you won't be prosecuted and, you know, essentially get a free pass, is that you're supposed to fully cooperate and you're supposed to provide the kinds of pieces of information that allow investigators to get search warrants, to be able to do wiretaps if they need, and to actually gather evidence that allows them to reel in the other members. Now here, by the time they come in, the conspiracy is over. So there's no more opportunity to sort of catch people in the act, um, which is different from what happened in the uh, retail gas um, conspiracy, which people might remember, uh, which was in the eastern townships of, of Quebec, where they, they actually right. were able to get wiretaps and catch people. But here, yeah, you, you want that evidence and you want, to, you want to be able to find things. What I don't understand, though, is if, if there are phone calls and evidence of phone calls, you know, so far we don't have any more than, than two people who've come forward. So I don't know whether there are, there are problems with the evidence or whether it's just simply taking time, which is possible, right? These, these investigations it, can be complex. It is slow moving, but if you add up all that bread over all those years, um, and you take these two at least the admissions of these two organizations uh, at face value, that's a lot of money that consumers were dishing out for bread over all those years. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, cartels are not uh, criminalized for for nothing. I mean, it's, it's these are these are serious market distortions that happen, and and uh, consumers are on the hook for that a lot of the time because they end up being often the people who pay the ultimate price for these things. It's this is serious misconduct. This is this is serious behavior. It's you know it's fraud on the market, uh, and it's a lot of money. Absolutely, that's why you know you see the amount of fine that you do, and that's why you see the language being used by the judge in the judgment. These are this is this is serious conduct, and we don't want it to happen. Jennifer, over time, I mean, the Competition Bureau always comes under fire because I think consumers think, wait a second, all these prices seem alike. So there must be something going on behind the scenes. And yet, very often, these these are these are few and far between. I mean, this fine was called historic this week. Um, and are we being well served? Is this an example of the Competition Bureau working? I think so. It, I think to be fair, you know, criminal prosecutions are, are not something that can be used every time, you know, you think there might be a problem. Uh, you know, it's just the system isn't designed to bring a prosecution every time you think there might be something happening. The evidence standards are pretty high. And especially when you're talking about economic crime, that's hard to detect. That usually you only find out about if someone tells you about it or someone whistleblows. And that takes uh, many years to put together. You know, it's not surprising that you don't have many cases of this type. Um, that that said, you know, there are other ways to uh, to deal with uh what you could call is anti-competitive conduct. Um, and so you don't need to rely only on the criminal law. But I, I think that this is an example of the, of the Bureau working. I, I think it, it just, people need to remember that the, these, are, these are cases that take time to bring together and take time to, to assemble. This one was particularly complicated. It involved charges from before and after the Competition Act was amended in 2010, uh, right. and, or 2009, but the impact was in 2010. And so there, there's a lot of things that they, that they have to kind of batten down and make sure are, are, um, 
are all all their ducks in are in order before they can uh, they can actually proceed. And so, you know, it's it seems like there aren't that many cases, but uh, but I, these, this is an important one. And I you know I w- I was encouraged to see that the second second party has has come forward. The question is now what's happening. You know, is this you know is this the beginning of of maybe more um, parties coming forward, or is this as far as it's going to go? And uh, I can't predict because I I don't I don't see the evidence. But I do think this is a, this is an example of a success. Yeah, there's some big names still. Uh, big names have come up still as part of this investigation, which is ongoing. Uh, when one looks at, I mean, the first thing that popped up, people were talking about gas prices again, right? I mean, that's always the the, mm-hmm. the one that everyone turns to. And I know that the Competition Bureau, if you go to their website, they have a long explainer as to why it, why that isn't, why they've never, you know, why that hasn't happened, for instance. But I, I guess there is out there also this idea that the Competition Act is used in a certain way that maybe it doesn't, that's not really what the purpose that it serves, right? Or the thresholds are so high that a lot of we just don't understand that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I said, I I think the things that are targeted criminally they do require pretty strong evidence, and you know, it's a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, and there's all the criminal law protections that kick in. There are other parts of the act that are basically subject to a, a civil standard. Um, some of these things have to be brought by the commissioner. Some things can be brought by private parties, and there you have different opportunities to you know to seek a remedy to a situation where there's something anti-competitive going on. But yeah, I mean, the, the act is designed, you know, to apply to a certain number of, of, uh, of situations. And, and it's true that sometimes prices are very similar in markets and it's actually not because there's a conscious effort to do so. And the Bureau does take, ser- you know, complaints seriously, but not everything ends up having a basis where they can proceed. So I, I know that that sounds very frustrating when it's viewed from the public say, well, well, playing prices that are too high. And I totally get that. But, you know, you can't just say, well, we think prices are too high. Therefore, you know, there needs to be a little more behind it. Yeah, I, I think it's only because each and every one of us pays these prices every single day. So we're, we're all, this is an issue that we're all quite conscious of, right? I mean, that's, therein lies the difference between that and say a food additive, right? I mean, that's, 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 that's right. That's the, right. I think things like bread and gas and cell phone bills you know, are things that we see yeah. and we, we get annoyed at because we see prices elsewhere and we think that we're getting ripped off. Absolutely. Indeed. Speaking of, I mean, not to put the, put you on the spot, but our question of the day is what you paid for your first apartment, because we're, what you paid in rent for your first place. And I was saying that I paid two fifty for an apartment, a studio near McGill in nineteen ninety one, which seems, I mean, I say that to people now, and I'm embarrassed to say it out loud because it sounds so cheap. But did you have something similar? Well, so the first apartment on my own would have been, you know, more expensive. But the first time I, I just rented a room. Oh yeah, it was probably you know, something like four or 500 bucks, but it was one, it was one room (laughs) in a rooming house, right? In Ottawa, in Sandy Hill. And that's, you know, uh, many, many years ago. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I still feel bad about my 250 for this for my own studio apartment in the McGill Ghetto in 1991. Jennifer Quaid, thanks so much for, uh, for clearing that up. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks. Have a good night. Uh, our next story, I mean, this concept sounds pretty simple, right? And I, I hope I don't oversimplify it. Uh, my next guest uh, w- will certainly correct me if I do. But Canadian media outlets have lost a fortune in advertising revenue. I think everyone understands this over over recent years uh, to tech companies such as Meta, the owners of Facebook and Instagram and search engines such as Google. Uh, 
but who simply share the content that those same media outlets are producing, but they get the advertising because, of course, that's where the eyeballs are, right? They've become, you know, it used to be for TV or for newspapers, they were the vehicle by which this content was shared. Therefore, that's where the advertising dollars went. These days, if you get your news on Facebook or on Instagram or somewhere else, that's where your eyeballs are. So that's who gets the advertising revenue, right? So how do you make up for that shortfall um, that is having a detrimental impact on uh you know, legacy media organizations, particularly across this country. Well, the Trudeau government proposed a bill called C-18, called the Online News Act, that that purportedly forces tech giants to pay media outlets for the content that they share. They have to come to some sort of deal to uh, to compensate media organizations for the news that they share or for the items that they share. But as Mike Tyson once so eloquently put it, everyone has a plan until they get a until they get punched in the mouth, right? I think that's how it went. And that is what companies such as Meta have decided to do, saying they will make good on a threat to end the ability of millions of us to access and share news on their platforms. And to do so, they'll do so before that law takes effect in the not-so-distant future. Google is also reportedly looking at restricting Canadians' ability to find news on its search engine. Uh, so, you know, now that now that they've come out swinging, so to speak, here's what the Prime Minister had to say about the potential blowback a few weeks ago. You know, someone reporting on the horrors in Bucha is not trying to get likes on their Facebook page. Journalism is essential. Rigorous, challenging, independent journalism is essential. And the fact that Facebook is still saying that it doesn't want to pay journalists for the work they do shows how deeply irresponsible and out of touch they are with how we need to ensure all of us we're protecting our democracies. Yeah, the, the prime minister uh, throwing a few punches of his own. He's not a bad boxer, right? But again, you know, he's fighting some real heavyweights here. So what's going on? Did the government overplay its hand? Are the tech giants being bullies? Are they being unreasonable? And what does this mean for the rest of us? The best person to answer those questions is someone who's been with us on this before. Michael Geist is the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. Michael, welcome back. No, thanks so, so much for having me. So we talked about this a while back, and it looked inevitable that this was going to pass. We thought maybe you thought, hoped there might be some amendments to it. That didn't really happen. So uh, what's ha- where are we at now? It looks like looks like we're you know the the, the two sides have, have sort of lined up and are ready to do battle. Yeah, it does seem that way. Although I, I'm not so sure that there's really a battle at this stage with Facebook. There may be one. I think it's over. Yeah, I do think it's over. Um, and and in that sense. It's been predictable for a long time. Facebook, you know, there certainly are lots of different views of Facebook, some of them quite negative. But to their credit, at least on this issue, they have been consistent from day one. And their position is news just is not a big part of people's feeds. It's about 3% of the feeds. It's highly substitutable. So people spend roughly the same amount of time on that platform, whether they're looking at news links or, or friends' photos. And so the notion that they would be on the hook to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for links. We're not talking about the actual content here. We're just talking about driving traffic back to publishers. The publishers themselves often are the ones that are posting and that it would be uncapped. It would be just, they wouldn't even know going in just how high that would be. They're just saying, listen, that renders news uneconomic in Canada. It's not, we can't, we can't possibly pay that is what they say. And so government having presented really two choices, if you link, you have to pay if you don't want to pay, then stop linking. And so they're stopping to link. 
and it is, and there are some nuances to this. So if I'm an, you know, a Facebook subscriber, a Facebook user, and I'm used to seeing the odd link, and you're right, oftentimes it is the media organizations themselves, especially smaller ones, by the way, that, that post their own material to Facebook because they recognize what an effective um, bulletin board it is for them. But if I'm sitting at home, what will I notice if Facebook takes away this, these links? Well, I think it's probably a function of what you won't notice because you won't be noticing right. Canadian news stories. Uh, and you're right that that, I think, will disproportionately harm smaller, independent, digital-first publications, many of whom are trying to build an audience, and they use social media uh, as a core element to do it. And that's one of the ironies here. You know, the government has talked about the need to, to help the industry and, of course, help grow it with new innovation. And yet the policy that was, was entirely predictable and the government seemingly just was content to say, well, it's probably just a bluff. We're just going to go ahead with this is going to ultimately hurt the smaller, independent, digital first publications even more than it does some of the big players. So, I mean, the government listening to Pablo Rodriguez or listening to uh, the prime minister, I mean, they've come out pretty vociferously on this one. Uh, did they just overplay their hand? Did they, did they not understand what might happen here or were they willing to take the consequences to be seen to stand up to big tech? It may be elements of both. You know, I'm not I'm not I think it'll be cold comfort, frankly, to the Canadians who use those platforms looking for news that they won't find news. And even more so for the publications that suddenly now see reduction in traffic. The, the Senate committee heard that publications get roughly 17 to 30 percent of their traffic is driven by social media like Facebook. So this is going to cost them significantly. And there will be no new deals. I mean, the whole idea was they're going to pump new money in. Uh, there's going to be new money, and in fact, there's going to be lost revenue because there's going to be lost traffic. And so it seems to me that the government, on the one hand, perhaps thought it's a bluff, perhaps just thought, listen, we'll find some way out of this, we'll convince them to do this. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, companies react to regulations all the time, and we want them to react to regulations. You know, we, we'll put in environmental protections and other kinds of rules, and we want the companies to react to that. We'll put in competition rules to ensure that they don't engage in certain behavior, or they do engage in certain behavior in some circumstances. This is a little different. We've got governments setting up certain sets of rules with certain policy objectives, and companies respond. And the idea that the government couldn't seemingly even envision the prospect that this was entirely a, a possible, indeed, I think with Facebook in particular, a likely outcome, um, suggests that they, they just weren't paying enough attention to the risks associated with this, and now I think are facing the, the consequences. And uh, Google as well. I mean, there were reports late this week that um, the heritage minister was in, you know, was in sort of heated negotiations or heated discussions with Google. Uh, what impact of that? Because clearly Meta have decided they're, they're going to, you know, abandon ship here. But what about, uh, what about Google? Yeah, you're right to, to raise Google as well. And I, and I do think the two companies, and we should note that it is just these two companies at the moment that mm -hmm. would be captured by this law. That's something that's directly from the heritage minister. And so you're right. I think that in Meta's case, it's very hard to see a path back. I mean, it just, the, the, their economics are such that this, this legislation just doesn't make sense. There would have been, and there would have, there are ways to try to bring them into the sphere or keep them there with contributions. The government chose to reject those. And at the end of the day, I think it's going to pay the price. And at this stage, with Meta in particular, given that there may be similar kind of legislation elsewhere, I think there's an element here where 
they can't be seen to be backing down on what they've said, not just from a Canadian perspective, but from a global one as well, if anyone's to take them seriously. I think Google is somewhat different, though. I mean, Google values news a bit differently because, of course, it becomes an element in their search engine. So there's, there's the Google News product, but even more, there's the search product. And so while they also did test the prospect of removing links to news, uh, they've also they've never said that, that they, would, uh, they would exit. They've always said that's a possibility. They've, made, they've had some of the same kinds of concerns about payments for links and uncapped liability. But they seem to be holding out hope that there is some scope to address those issues, at least according to reports. And the government has to establish some regulations. It would appear they're hoping they can use that regulatory process to provide them with a bit of certainty. Michael, I've often been told that um, that companies such as Meta look at Canada sort of as they're near abroad, and they're going to go fight tooth and nail against regulations that come into Canada, things they might be a little more pliant with in, in Europe because it doesn't. But anything that happens in Canada reflects on what happens in the U.S., and they know it's going to potentially set a precedent. Is that fair? Mm, that's an interesting observation. Listen, I think I, I think there's a dynamic where certainly Europe is, is obviously a much larger jurisdiction. It's been much more aggressive when it comes to regulation. And so I think you know all the tech companies pay attention to what takes place there. And from a Canadian perspective, I'm not sure that, that they're so primarily focused on sort of a U.S. reaction. I think in this case, they are paying attention very much to what happens in Canada, in part because there are a number of countries, including actually at the state level in the United States, thinking about these kinds of rules. And, and I think in some ways there, there may well be a desire to make an example out of Canada when it comes to this. But, you know, we, we have seen some rules adopted and, and sometimes the companies agree, sometimes they don't. I, I must admit, sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a misnomer to say, ah, oh, they just don't want to be regulated at all. I, I'm not so sure that right. that's the case. I mean, no one loves regulation, but um, I think there's an acceptance that it that it may well be a necessity in many cases. The difference here is that this legislation, paying for links with uncapped liability, is just a bridge too far. Right. And just doesn't make sense for them, right? I'm sure they looked at the business model. And as you pointed out, I mean, if it's a take it or leave it and they can afford to leave it, then that's what they do. They're a business, right? I mean, they're not, uh, they're not, they're, they're not in the, much like the media, by the way, they're not in the business of, of, of democracy. They're in the business of, of revenue. Yeah, no. And listen, everyone makes their choices about the media. It's funny to hear the prime minister in that clip you played say, you know, yeah. how dare they not pay for news? They're not using news. You know, you could say the same about the millions of Canadians who have stopped their subscriptions to various newspapers. They're not paying for news anymore either. Um, and so it's a value proposition in many cases, and there are alternatives, and there are alternatives in Facebook's case as well. If the government really wants to help preserve this this space, and we can argue that you know it's a public good to ensure that there is this kind of availability, there were alternatives available, alternatives that didn't have some of these real negative implications around uh, independence of the press around links uh, you know that around the kind of fiscal uncertainty and for whatever reason the government chose to reject those approaches yeah is, is this i mean it, again it feels like c18 is on its way uh i mean it is on its way it's done uh is there any is it broad enough that it can be tinkered with once once it's in place uh, to to kind of i mean if this doesn't work if facebook does in fact as it seems it's going to just walk away from this uh, and as you pointed out sort of defeat the whole purpose of trying to find extra revenue for media organizations that need it and support journalism especially at the local level right like let's be honest um that that there's any way to walk this back? I guess it doesn't sound like there is. 
No, I don't think there is with respect to Facebook. You know, I'd love to be proven wrong, but uh, they are, they've been quoted even t- tonight as saying that they don't see anything in the regulation-making process, which is the last element here. That would change fundamentally what this legislation does, and the, those fundamentals is where the problem lies. You know, if, you're, if the core of the legislation is mandated payments for links and uncapped liability, um, that's not something that you can easily solve through regulation. Now, Google's expressed some of the same concerns, and the report suggests that they are having conversations. So perhaps there is some scope to, to see some changes. And, and, you know, perhaps the government is waking up to the realities of, of what they've created here. You know, they, in a sense, you know, made the big bet that this was a bluff. It's not a bluff. And now they look really bad. And, you know, I think the government has invested so heavily in the sector, hundreds of millions of dollars on various programs. And this really puts that at threat, threatens that, too. And in some ways, the, the losses here really roll back the clock several years in terms of where we were at. It's it's it frankly is the potential to be disastrous. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it feels like the government just doesn't really understand how the how the media how the media or its consumers work, right? I mean, that's part of the issue. There's that. There, there's an element almost, you know, of, of there's, you know, the government's often accused of virtue signaling. And yep. I, I feel that in this instance, it's almost as if it feels that it's virtuous, that, yes, of course, you know, it is trying to, to help media. It sees that as an integral element in a successful democracy. It parks to the side the problems that we have with the access to information system and the non-answers that they often give. So talk about how important media is, except when they, when people start asking hard questions. But even if we park that to the side, I think they see this as virtuous legislation. And so how could anybody be against it? And, you know, the reality is that there are economics in place the, and that, that companies, uh, that these companies are laying people off too and have to make some of these kinds of business decisions. And at, at different moments, the government's acknowledged that. You know, the Heritage Minister has said it's a business choice. They just expected, I think, the choice that they would make uh, was one that they would cooperate and play ball with this. And it appears that won't be the case. It's not like they weren't warned, Michael. I mean, you certainly spent a lot no. of time warning them. If they read your, if they read your blog, they would, they wouldn't have never have passed it this way. You know, yes, I, I've certainly been saying that for a long time, but. You know, I, some of the stuff I was posting was only reflecting what the companies, particularly Facebook, was saying. That there's just been it's been total consistency. You know, this this emphasis that we often hear as well. They did the, they said this in Australia, and they ultimately backed down, not recognizing that there are some pretty significant differences between the legislation in Canada and the legislation in Australia. And the reality in Australia is that the Australian government did make changes in the face of. Uh, Facebook's removal of, of news for several days. And there was flexibility in the way they had structured their law that allowed them to do that and bring them back in. We don't have some of that same kind of flexibility. So uh, I think the Canadian government really is boxed into a corner a little bit. And, you know, it, it sort of it kind of went along thinking, well, we've seen this, this movie before and we know how it ends. At the end, they come back. And it seems like that may not be the case this time. One last trick question, quick one for you, Michael. Your first apartment. What did you What did you pay for the first place you rented? Do you remember? I don't. God, it's been too old. Uh, I mean, it would be it would be it would be first it would be second year university residence. Yeah, same year. here. I yeah. don't remember at all. 
Mine anyway. was two fifty. Two fifty for a studio near McGill. That was mine. Okay. So. I had a roommate. I had a roommate. So it was definitely going to be more because it was the two of us. But I don't remember. Wow. Oh, Michael, as always. Yeah. Thanks for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. All right. Thanks. You too. Take care. You know, we talked a lot about uh, the submersible, the Titan this week and the tragic end in that search for the five on board. It was announced today that the Canadian Transportation Safety Board will be launching an investigation into the loss of that sub. But a lot of this has overshadowed a far more significant loss of life at sea this month. And it happened in somewhat calmer yet very dangerous waters in the Mediterranean, where as many as 650 people are feared dead after the boat they were on sank on June the 14th. It left the Libyan coastal city of Tobruk carrying migrants uh, with an estimated 750 people on board. There are images of it. It is packed. They had paid thousands of dollars each. Uh, it ran into trouble before sinking off the coast of Greece. Only 104, that number may have changed a little bit last I checked, only 104 uh, men and young men, Egyptians, Palestinians, Syrians, uh, Pakistanis rather, Syrians and Palestinians survived. They told authorities that women and children were trapped in the hold as the ship capsized and sunk within minutes to one of the deepest spots in the Mediterranean. It is one of the worst migrant shipwrecks in the Mediterranean Sea on record, and that is saying something. just a, a horrific, horrific tragedy. Greece has been widely criticized for not trying to save the boat before it sank. It was in international waters. But Greece, uh, there is a lot of speculation circulating that Greece let it sit there for a while before doing anything, saying they'd spoken to people on the boat. They were said they were heading to Italy and didn't want to be rescued. And so they left it as is. Still lots of questions to be answered there. Um, there's been arrests made of those allegedly who were responsible for this boat in the first place. And even before these latest deaths, this latest tragedy, more than a 1,000 people are known to have drowned uh, from central Mediterranean crossings this year. It is now the most dangerous migration route in the world, not because the waters themselves are so treacherous, but because the boats themselves are so ill-equipped for what they encounter out in the open waters of the Mediterranean, and the people on board are packed and often have no way of surviving if, in fact, something goes wrong. Um, And the first quarter of this year has been the deadliest since 2017. I mean, this has been a huge problem problem uh, for years now, almost a decade, more than 27,000 missing uh, in the Mediterranean since 2014, says the International Organization of Migration. People will keep on going on uh, perilous journeys. Uh, they will, when they leave their country and the situation of uh, persecution or uh, war, they will find ways to move. Right. And we were well aware of this as, uh, as a global community. Uh, we were well aware of this. In fact, there have been uh, many times in the past where the world has stood, stood up and said, we can't allow this to continue to happen. And yet here we are still turning very much a blind eye. In some ways, we're more desensitized to it now, unfortunately, than we were uh, eight years ago this September, when an image that captured both shocked and, and horrified and captured the world's attention and sparked a whole lot of promises that this needed to be, people needed to be helped. And this couldn't continue. That, of course, was the image of little Alan Kurdi uh, on a beach in Turkey. Um, his mother, Rihanna, and his brother, Galib, were also killed. They also uh, died fleeing Syria, uh, making that treacherous journey towards Greece from Turkey on a small boat. And again, that image 
led to consternation around the world and vows that we would not turn a blind eye, that we wouldn't do what we've done this month again. And yet here we are. No one knows this story better than Tima Curdy, Alan's aunt. She is a human rights activist, co-founder of the Curdy Foundation alongside uh, Abdullah, her brother, and author of The Boy on the Beach, My Family's Escape from Syria and Our Hope for a New Home. And Tima joins me tonight. Uh, thank you so much, Tima. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. These new, you know, this, these images that we see uh, and just the stories of, of those who survived and the grieving families back where they came from and so on, um, here we are eight years later. It must be so disheartening for you to watch these events occur again and again. Yes, absolutely. Um, the thing is, you know, the past um, seven, eight years now since the tragedy of my nephew, Alan, um you know, how many uh, innocent people have died in that sea? We watch the news. I do watch the news and, you know, feel sorry for them and, you know, try our best. You know, I'm involved a little bit with rescue ship over their organization. The only thing is, you know, yeah, we are doing our job, our best. But the last few days, when I woke up that morning and I heard this news, first the tweet from the alarm phone, tweeting about 700 people drowned. And I was like shocked for the minute. The only thing I, I, I really uh, touched my heart and I started crying when mm-hmm. it said 100 people, they were locked below the deck and mostly our children and women. And right away, I I was like, I want to scream to the world the same exactly when I heard the news about my family, and I didn't know what to do. So I reached out to Event Crew, which also um, we know each other, kind of. Uh, Darish, he's one of the, the head of the crew, and I start talking to him and what's up, and I'm crying. And we both start crying. I said to him, what's happening? Please tell me, because that moment, it just took me back to that. When my brother Abdullah, in 2015, he has three three people, like two kids and, and his wife, trying to help them, to push them above the water. And it keep coming to my mind, a hundred kids was locked in that um, below the deck, and they are the first one who drown before any news, anybody notice about them. So, you know, we start, you know, he said, um, I really want you to be here. But I know it's kind of like we talk about it, let's, you know, I want to write something, let's think about something. So we, he came back to me and he said, you're right, you know, we need to advocate for those people, the missing people. So, yep. That's how I joined them and with the letter and hope uh, to bring more awareness. And basically, you know, the rescue ship should be allowed at the sea to rescue people's life. Yeah, it was, it, you know, yeah. yeah. What, what, what struck me about it, too, is that, again, you know, it was... Um, I mean, we saw that the survivors early on, I mean, it was, it was unclear exactly what had happened. Then the images started to, to, to appear. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out, of course, that the survivors were only men, right? And they were telling these stories and people were like, well, 
who was who else was on that boat and and then they started mm-hmm. as you mentioned they started sharing the stories of the men and the women and the children and and just how much i mean we we think of we use the term migrants and it suggests that everyone is the same but you're right mm-hmm. i mean you know there are more vulnerable amongst the vulnerable yes exactly you know in europe they use the the word migrant a lot to be honest mm-hmm. because um like they don't understand that war poverty, natural disasters, you know, cause people or force them to leave their home. And they have no choice. Sometimes, you know, to decide to take that journey from my personal experience, you know, it's not an easy decision to make. But sometimes desperate really push people to do it. I'm dying anyway, living this way. Either I die in a war or I take a risk for a better life and a future for my own family. So there is a connection. Uh, people should, should really be compassionate about these people. And what really, really also hurt me, that, again, we, they are sitting there, the Greece, the Italian, they just point and finger at each other and know it's, it's about the play, blame. Okay, well, you know, you did this. No, I didn't. You know, it's not about this at the time. It's there is 600 people are missing from back, uh, you know, Afghanistan, from Syria, from Libya, from, and they have family are waiting for them just yeah. to to know like what ha- well for sure they are all die, but those innocent souls. I really want the international community to put a little bit effort and go and and send uh, uh, rescue uh, search. We need to find those people and give them the name they deserve because they have a name. They are people like everybody else. And especially, I hope, from my Canadian government to actually... um, you know, think about it and go there and help with the search. We need those family are waiting to know about what the body happened to their their family, to their loved ones. Yeah, yes. I mean, it, I mean, we we both live in BC. I think out here, when you live here, you know, there are struggles, but you don't. Under, no one understands unless you know. You know, I've, I've been to Tobruk actually, where that boat left from. No one, you don't understand that that what drives people. To, mm-hmm. to spend that amount of money exactly. to get on that kind of boat with their families just to try exactly. to get to to uh, to somewhere where there is the mm-hmm. promise of a better life. Yes. You know, for me, uh, when uh, I say something, when I feel it, because you're right, when you are really there in the ground and talking to people, witness it in your own eyes, it's completely changed um, the, the way you look at the life and you want to do something. Like for me, being in Turkey, I have two sisters there, they're refugee, and um, just last month I come back and I start helping the people who are uh, affected by the earthquake. And, you know, the Syrian people, to be honest, in, in, in Turkey, um, they get a very little money but their house is gone, and so they come where to the district where my sister is, not affected by the earthquake. Can you imagine there is 30 people 
are living in two-bedroom apartment. There is, like here, we talk about, you know, houses crisis, same thing in there. But the landlord always, you know, want to kick them out. He doesn't care. You know, you yeah. have to be out. So I try to help them in some way. And the story they tell me is just, I can't, I can't come home here and forget about them. It's just stuck in my heart. The, you know, in Arabic Kurdistan, when I go to the refugee camp every year, you know, help as much as I can. You know, um, people who who actually uh, living outside the camp, you go to their houses, unacceptable the way they live. You know, they can maybe eat once a day if they can. Children, like, did, like yeah. we... We like, understand. Again, yeah. We talk, right? We understand why why they leave. Tima Kurdi is with us this half hour. Uh, human rights activist, co-founder of the Kurdi Foundation, alongside her brother and author of The Boy on the Beach: My Family's Escape from Syria and Our Hope for a New Home. Of course, aunt to Alan Kurdi, uh, whose death back in 2015, drowning death, really woke up the world to the plight of of, my, of people trying to make it across, trying to flee the war in Syria uh, to make it to to a safe haven. Uh, Tima, it felt like this was, you know, I mean, th- this this. A submersible story came along, and there's been a lot made about people turning their eyes away. I suppose if you could say one thing to people, it's that we can't turn our eyes away from what's happening in the Mediterranean. These tragedies repeating themselves again and again and again. What would you like to see people do? Simply, uh, you know, you're doing some good work with the Curdy Foundation. I, I suppose we just all have to do our part and make sure that our governments are doing our part, their part. Mm-hmm. You know, first thing, it's just like um, we need to focus on the root cause those refugees to flee their home. Um, the, the international community, the world leader, they need to invest more money in their country where they are fleeing from, from so people do not take a risk and, and, and danger so they leave the country, their country. And, but also, every country should still welcome the refugee give them the future for their own children, focus on those young kids because they are the one that's going to pay back to the country they are in. And until then, those rescue ships at the sea need to be free to save lives. And we don't want to let people drown. They can donate money. You know, the UNSCR, like I know personally when I am in Arbil, Kurdistan, and um, somewhere else and stuff. You know, there is so many organizations out, out there. I honestly, every one of us has a duty to do good in this world. Just follow your heart. You can donate money. You can help your community. Welcoming the refugee. I cannot thank the Canadian people enough. The way they supported and welcoming refugee their country. You know, if something happened in our uh, city community, like the fire or any any something disaster, how the community come together to help and pour their heart out. So I hope, you know, that everybody will follow the Canadian how how they are, but more need to be doing. We can do a lot more from donation, from helping the people in need. From telling your government, your politician, what you want to help the people in need. 
Well, Tima Curdy, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much and uh, continue your good work. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Something, something's happening in Russia tonight. I don't know if you've been watching the news or seeing social media feeds, uh, but it has been an extremely volatile uh, 24 hours, maybe not even 18 hours or so. The situation there tonight is uncertain. Uh, how uncertain is unclear, uh, but things are shaking, and here's why. The leader of a Russian mercenary group called the Wagner Group, Evgeny uh, Prigozhin, has called for an armed mutiny against Russia's top military leadership, claiming his fighters, who are fighting with Russia's regular army in Ukraine, were attacked by the Russians. ABC's Ian Pinnell has a bit of an explanation. A major crisis unfolding in Russia. The leader of Russia's paramilitary Wagner Group fighting in Ukraine, calling for an armed rebellion against senior members of Russia's military leadership. Yevgeny Prigozhin, in a long-running feud with Russian Defense Minister Shoigu and other commanders, claiming his troops were attacked by the regular Russian army. The Wagner leader warning that the military leadership of Russia must be stopped, saying he has 25,000 men behind him. Yeah. I mean, 25,000 men, they've been fighting in Ukraine. Uh, apparently, we don't know for sure. It seems they may be on the move tonight back into Russia, leaving the battlefield in Ukraine. It's all a bit unclear right now. What is clear is that uh, Prigozhin, who is the head of this Wagner group, is a powerful guy, and he's got a big army with him, and he's sort of declared war on the military brass. Part of this is that he's accused them of utter incompetence in the war in Ukraine and also of, of starving his troops of weapons and ammunition. So he's sort of protecting his own army here. In, and they're battling. I mean, they're both supposed to be fighting the Ukrainians. At this point, they're fighting each other. Uh, today, though, a step too far. Again, he's, you know, he says he's going to punish uh, the defense officials in Russia. Um, Russian, of course, Russian authorities, of course, had to strike back. The country's top counterterrorism organization launching a criminal inquiry today against Prigozhin on charges of, fom of fomenting an armed rebellion, fomenting an armed rebellion over threats to oust uh, Defense Minister Shoigu. The Kremlin has commented little, but has said Putin has been informed about the armed mutiny attempt and the case against Prigozhin. Putin's spokesman has said all necessary measures are being taken. The situation remains very unclear. Senior U.S. officials have said they are monitoring it. Ukraine has said it is also watching, with speculation it might try to take advantage of the confusion in Russia. Patrick Reval, ABC News, Kiev, Ukraine. All right. So this is a fast moving situation. And as the sun arises, which it is now, I guess, uh, in, in places such as Rostov and Moscow, we may start to learn more. But joining me now with more on this is Alexander Lonoshka, assistant professor of the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo at the Balsillie School of International Affairs, who's been with us often on these subjects, including the night that the Ukrainian uh, the invasion of Ukraine began uh, back in March of last year. Uh, Alexander, thanks so much for your time on this one tonight. Thank you again for having me. Uh, this one, I mean, I've been trying to follow on social media. There's a lot of speculation going on. There's a lot of rumor going on. But what we do know is that, that you know, clearly uh, Prigozhin, the head of this mercenary group, has come out with some pretty incredible language. A reminder to listeners, who are they? Who is the Wagner Group and why are they, why do they have 25,000 troops fighting in, in Ukraine? So ostensibly, the Wagner Group is a private military uh, group that is under the leadership of Evgeny Prigozhin, 
who was, uh, believe it or not, Vladimir Putin's chef once upon a time. He was a caterer. Uh, That's right. Yes, he was a caterer. And indeed, there's a picture of him uh, giving food to George W. Bush when he visited Moscow some years ago uh, in Putin's presence. Uh, This is a group that has been involved in various uh, military activities around the world, including parts of Africa, but certainly has been involved in Ukraine. They have been engaged in some very heavy fighting, most notably in Bakhmut, as part of Russia's full-fledged invasion. As you mentioned just a few minutes ago, Prigozhin's complaint as of late, it has been that he has his forces have been starved of ammunition and various munitions uh, that they've been used as can fodder in some cases. He has used ex-convicts or even uh, current convicts to fill his ranks, and as such, uh, he has provided more in, more incendiary rhetoric directed at the military leadership. And things have escalated this morning when he basically gave a rundown of all the reasons why Russian official statements about the war have been wrong, including some of the justifications. And within a matter of hours today, it seems like uh, he had claimed that there was a a strike launched against uh, Wagner forces. And now we, in fact, are observing on social media Wagner forces seizing key government sites in a city called Rostov-on-Don, which is a city of about a million people uh, yeah. in southern Russia. It's a very volatile. Yeah, not too far, not too far from Mariupol, right? If people remember that that city in, in southern Ukraine. Um, so, so what's happening here is you have an angry head of a mercenary force of twenty five thousand soldiers, ostensibly under no one's command, perhaps uh, marching in. It seems, at least, on the move into Russia to settle some scores with some military, with the head of the Russian militaries that he doesn't like. And, and this feels, I mean, it's hard to describe how volatile this is. Where is Vladimir Putin? That is the big question many people are asking. He has been conspicuously absent as this event has been unfolding over the course of the last 24 hours. That might be part of his MO. Again, Prigozhin has not criticized Putin explicitly or openly. A lot of his ire has been directed at the military leadership, including the defense minister, Shoigu, and the chair of the general staff, Karazimov. Putin has not been receiving end of criticisms and so maybe that is why Putin has uh, taken a pro- low profile. But precisely because of that Wagner forces have taken key sites in Rostov, this is a major body blow to the image that Putin wants to project, which is an image of order and stability within Russia. That image, I think, is very much in tatters right now. I mean, it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like your typical coup, but but it sounds a bit like I mean, this is certainly within the military side of things. Uh, This is this feels like it's going to be some sort of showdown. I suppose we don't really we don't know where Prigozhin is either tonight, right? We do not. And I suspect he wants to keep it that way for a number of reasons. No doubt. (laughs) 
Yeah. I, I mean, Alex, this you've been watching this for a long time. I mean, it, it sometimes what's happened in the last eight, 16 months uh, defies explanation. This, to me, defies – I mean, it all makes sense when you explain the battle that's this war that's gone on within the Russian military and, and just the anger that someone like Prigozhin feels over how ineffective Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been. But it feels like – I mean, what's happened here is that the infighting has been going on. The, the bad blood has been there for a while, and now this infighting has blown up into something – potentially very, very uh, earth-changing in, in Russia. It has. It's unclear how far Wagner forces can really go. They're not entirely separate from the Russian state or the Russian military, for that matter, despite it being considered to be a private military uh, company. After all, the Wagner group has depended on Russian military logistics um, for undertaking various activities, they have received, after all, ammunition, hence the complaints that they have not received enough. But they do have about ten to 15,000 forces. Prigozhin claims he has 25,000. Uh, we're not sure about those numbers. They do have weapons at their disposal. They have taken key sites. Uh, there is fighting not just in Rostov-on-Don, but also in another city near Ukraine called Voronezh. And so... Uh, this is an extremely volatile situation. Some people claim that this is going to be over very quickly, um, but such statements remind me of earlier predictions that this full-fledged invasion of Ukraine will last a few days. I'm a little hesitant about uh, making any sort of predictions, but it does look like uh, this is a crisis that has some staying power for sure. Alexander, there is a counteroffensive going on by the Ukrainian military, and one thinks if the Russians are fighting amongst themselves, and that a certain number of, of mercenaries, uh, Wagner Group troops, have left to go back into Russia, uh, this seems to to change a bit of the the dynamics on the ground in Ukraine, at least in the short term. Yeah, so the counteroffensive perhaps began in earnest around June fifth. I say perhaps because. There was some movement along some sectors um, on the front lines, which, again, are massively long. It's a front line of about 1,200 kilometers. And, indeed, uh, Russia presumably has about 200,000 military personnel on Ukraine territory holding down uh, well-fortified positions, um, positions that are several lines deep. Ukraine has been making some progress in some sectors. Some would say perhaps not as much as has been expected. But I would still argue that the way that Ukraine has been fighting this war is somewhat in the way of targeting logistics, ammunition depots, and opportunistically targeting command posts. And we've seen a lot of that um, in the last few days, especially uh, in the rear guard of Russian forces. And so if Russia is encountering a situation like it is right now, whereby so many of its combat forces are committed to Ukraine, doesn't really have much in the way of tackling the threat now posed by Wagner forces, then that will induce some sort of pressure to withdraw uh, some number of those forces on Ukraine territory, which presumably will make things a little easier uh, for Ukraine, because a big question mark was, well, Russia's built these fortifications the last few months, but how well are they manned? What's the quality of the forces manning uh, those fortifications? This new crisis perhaps 
helps answer some of those questions in a way that will be favorable for Ukraine. Right. What what will you be looking for then? Because again, the dust is yet to settle here. The sun is rising on a Saturday morning in Russia. What are you looking for now? I, sp- I, I guess we need to hear from 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 Putin, I suppose, or figure out just what's happening on the ground, right? I mean, it's it's so fluid. With respect to the Ukraine counteroffensive, oh, I no, to the uh, no, with respect to what's happening in Russia t- today. Yeah, oh, what's happening yeah right now? I mean, yeah. so all these things are kind of happening all, all, all at once, right? So, yeah. so I, I just want to say that if I were Ukraine, uh, you might want to opportunistically strike, if you can, uh, any sort of logistical hub or uh, railways that would allow the movement of Russian troops uh, back into Russia uh, in a way that would uh, hamper the ability of the Russian armed forces uh, to address the threat now posed by Wagner. That would also have a psychological effect, too, because right. uh, if morale in the Russian army was already fairly low, then seeing this level of infighting uh, break out and the Russian political leadership apparently being paralyzed... Uh, and we have some anecdotal reports already that uh, Russian commanders on the battlefield are no longer issuing orders, uh, then that certainly um, will be something that Ukraine will want to exploit. You know, his, regards, history, yeah. Yeah, history can move awfully fast, Alexander, sometimes. And it feels like history maybe This could all be over quickly, as you mentioned. But it feels like history is moving awfully fast today. I mean, here is this fairly significant uh, you know, mercenary commander, uh, pretty much fighting against his own army, his own military command at this point, or Russia's military command. Uh, I mean, this this could be this not necessarily a good thing either. Instability in Russia carries some pretty big risks for the for everybody. No, it's not necessarily a good thing. Um, I mean, Prigozhin's no friend of Ukraine uh, whatsoever, no. right? He no. is genocidal. In fact, you can argue, and many do, that the big cleavage in Russian. Uh, elite politics is about the war and really between those who are very, very hawkish, basically to the right of Putin, if that were even possible, and those who are trying to manage the conflict in a way as to restore some degree of normality to the extent that it's possible with uh, the West, uh, to go back to the world prior to uh, the 24th of February of last year. Um, the, The main threat facing Putin is not the latter group, it's the former group, the group that is much more nationalistic, much more anti-Ukrainian, Prigozhin fits that bill. But yeah. it does serve Ukraine's interests if the two sides are basically killing one another uh, and are weakening one another in such a way that will facilitate the counteroffensive uh, and uh, Ukraine's own goals for liberating its territory. Right. I only have a couple, about a minute and a half left. What will you be looking for now then in the next 12 hours or so? What what are the, the, the telltale signs of, of where this is going to go, do you think? It really depends on what sort of security forces Russia is able to um, muster, uh, whether those forces will in fact respect and fulfill yeah. uh, political commands from the center. We see some possibility of certain uh, National Guard units not really doing anything as they are. Uh, at present in Rostov and Don. That may not necessarily mean that they're defecting, but they may simply be paralyzed at the decision-making level. So paying attention to the degree that command is unified, which has been grossly dysfunctional so far, I think will be one important indicator moving forward. Yeah, well, stay tuned. Uh, Alexander, as always, thanks for staying up late to to offer us some some perspective on what's happening. It's, uh, yeah, history moves fast. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me again. 
time they say I'm French, then they say I'm Italian, then they say I'm German, I'm Croatian, I'm Gadian, Lithuanian, and one man very strange, but I was Japanese. A lot of time we meet people and they keep saying you're foreign. And I'm going, no, I'm from Stanford. Why did I lose the speech? Where did the, the speech go to make it sound as if I was foreign? That, remarkably, is Kath Lockett, an Englishwoman from Stafford who developed an unidentifiable foreign accent, even though she only speaks English and has never lived abroad, after she suffered a brain injury. She's only about 100 people around the world who have this what's called foreign accent syndrome, and she had it because of a rare neurological condition. It is a reminder that the human brain is impossibly complex and incredibly delicate, uh, capable of extraordinary stuff, abundant creativity, and lots and lots of you know, linguistic dexterity. You name it. It's an, a mystery and a wonder. Um, but it's also one of the most bizarre because we don't fully understand sometimes where things go wrong or how exactly it works. And that is the title. Uh, I mean, Bizarre is the title of a new book by neuroscientist Mark Digman uh, called Bizarre, the most peculiar cases of human behavior and what they tell us about how the brain works. I've always been really interested in foreign language syndrome. It turns out, I gather from Mark, that it's actually not really, there is no accent. It's just something has changed in the way that people speak. So even though they are speaking English, um, the accent, the way it comes out, sounds different. So we, we say, oh, it's a foreign language accent. Like they sound like they're they have a foreign accent, but they don't. It's just the way they speak has changed. So and this is, you know, there are many examples in this book of this. So uh from the patient who's afraid to take a shower because she fears her body will slip down the drain, to a man who's convinced against all evidence clearly that he is a cat, a woman who compulsively snacks on cigarette ashes. These are all examples of how the brain works and how sometimes uh, shifts, traumatic brain injuries, for instance, can shift the entire way the brain works, your entire sense of self. Now, the book isn't really about the novelty of it, although it's fascinating. And these are all extremely rare cases. But what uh, those most unusual of cases can teach us really about that most mysterious of organs, the brain, that's what it's about. And it really you know, looks at the, mystery, the mysteries that the brain continues to hold for us. So joining me now is neuroscientist Mark Digman. Again, his book is called Bizarre. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. There are so many interesting examples about how sudden changes to the brain can cause changes uh, to one's, well, one's entire existence in many ways. But I suppose what it begins with is just how fundamentally important the brain is to our sense of self. Absolutely. I mean, as somebody trained in neuroscience, I mean, I believe that the brain creates the sense of self. And so there are plenty of examples in my book of people who experience something like a stroke or a traumatic brain injury and become drastically different people. For example, I talk in the book about a condition called Cotard syndrome. People suddenly after some sort of traumatic brain event or due to some sort of psychiatric condition, start to believe that they're dead um, or that their body is decaying or their organs have disappeared. And so you know, this is a drastic alteration in their sense of their existence and their self. And regardless of you know all the evidence to the contrary, the fact that they're walking around and talking and, and obviously alive, uh, they believe that they're not. Alterations to the brain can drastically change who we think we are. 
Yeah, it gives whole new meaning to the term mind playing tricks on on you, right? Uh, it's uh, And there are some remarkable ones here, too, about losing your sort of just basic stuff, like things that you take completely for granted every day. The idea that you recognize people, for instance. Yes, there's a condition called prosopagnosia. And, and these things all occur on a spectrum. So some people have milder forms of this and some people more severe. But it's a condition where people have a hard time recognizing faces. And in the most severe uh, examples of it, people can't even recognize their own face in the mirror. And so looking at a face to them, I mean, it might be as distinct as an elbow to somebody else. Uh, they, some people can't even recognize facial features. Other examples, like losing your sense of time, being unable to tell if five minutes going by is five minutes or six hours or one year. Uh, so these are things that we kind of take for granted. They're just part of our, our normal existence, but they can be taken away with damage to the brain. Right. And, and do we have an idea of why these things? I mean, there's one where you sort of people believe they're animals, which is another one. I mean, it's it, what's what struck me about this is just the wide range of impacts that can happen when one has some sort of alteration to the brain. I, I don't know if alteration is the right word. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. I mean, the, the many of the conditions I talk about are caused by strokes or traumatic brain, brain injuries, and they do cause alterations because they cause damage. But it, it is amazing how diverse the effects can be. And so the disorder that you mentioned is, is called clinical lycanthropy. And lycanthropy is a term that actually refers to werewolves. But we now use this uh, designation to refer to people that believe they can turn into any animals. There's cases in my book I talk about people who believe they can turn into snakes, gerbils, uh, birds, wolves, all it runs the gamut. You know, it is amazing how different the outcomes can be due to brain damage. And we think that's due to the damage occurring in different places in the brain. And that's one of the things that we still really have yet to understand is what all these different parts of the brain do. I was going to say, between, I guess we have an idea of the severity of it because some people display milder symptoms and some people more severe, but we don't fully understand what's happening, right? Why, uh, why a certain, I can, I would imagine that many people suffer the same kind of brain trauma and have different outcomes. Yeah, we, we, we don't understand what's happening. And a lot of the conditions I talk about in my book, and it, it, they are incredibly rare. And so this is one of the, the problems is that, you know, we have a lot of money that goes into funding research to understand things like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, uh, because a lot of people experience those things. But clinical lycanthropy doesn't affect a lot of people. And so we don't have a lot of research to tell us what's actually going on in the brain to cause it to occur. And so that's true for a lot of the conditions I talk about in my book. They are rare, and we do have hypotheses, but not a very clear understanding. There's still a lot to a uh, lot to learn. Right. I mean, the one that always pops to mind for me is people who develop accents, right? Who never, who neither never set foot in the country, or that that one is another. That, I think that's the one that people may be most familiar with because it's the one that we we can hear it, right? So we we uh, and it's been talked about a lot, but again, we don't know exactly what's happening in the brain in these cases. Right. So it's a, I do talk about that in my book as well. It's called foreign accent syndrome. And uh, there are cases I talk about a woman who uh, went in for dental surgery and she woke up from anesthesia and had developed a foreign accent. These accents are often not very good replications of a specific accent. They, this woman in particular had a combination of different accents. Uh, and so it was pretty unique. And it's thought that she had a stroke while she was uh, under anesthesia. We don't know, though, exactly why a stroke would cause that sort of disorder to occur. 
We think though that it's that these patients are not actually speaking with a new foreign accent. It's that they have disruptions to their normal method of speaking. And so it sounds kind of like an accent, but it's not actually a very application of a, of a true accent. How are those who who have, um, I, I, I didn't want to use the word suffer, but I guess suffer is, is maybe the right word for those who have these impacts. When, when they talk about what's happened to them, how do they, how do they express it's completely beyond their control? Right. I mean, I, this is one of the things that I, I come back to uh, a few times throughout the book is that, I mean, it, it sometimes it is suffering. It really depends on what we're talking about, what kind of condition we're talking about. Sometimes these these conditions are severe and they do cause severe suffering. And how people talk about them really depends on the condition that we're, we're talking about. So with clinical lycanthropy, for example, I, I discuss a patient who was 24 years old and had believed he had been a cat for over a decade. And to him, there was the problem was with people saying that this wasn't true. Right. Uh, and so there wasn't awareness that this wasn't accurate. And so there's not clear suffering to that individual because he's he's not, you know, this is his reality. But there are other conditions where, you know, people do realize that this is, a, you know, having a drastic impact on their life. And so how the, the individuals talk about really depends on what they're going through. And for the families of, the, of of people as well, I mean, it must be very difficult because, in some ways, in some ways they're with you, and in some ways they're not, right? Which is which is difficult, right? And and it's 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 often very confusing too because these again these are not disorders that that many people are familiar with. When you have a, a relative who begins begins acting in these strange ways, it's hard to figure out what's going on at first. And so back to that disorder I talked about called Cotard syndrome or Cotard delusion, where an individual believes they're dead. I, I discuss a, a patient who had a cardiovascular event and then uh, woke up from a coma and believed she was dead and tried to convince her family that they needed to uh, have a funeral for, funeral for her and bury her and actually became very agitated and upset when they wouldn't do it. And so eventually the way they ended up appeasing her is to kind of get her dressed for burial and uh, have her lay down until she fell asleep. Mark, there was clearly a reason. I mean, these are isolated and rare incidents. That's often why we talk about them, right? But there is a there is a theme here that you wanted to address. What was it? So one of the themes, I think there's there's several themes that I come back to throughout the book. But one of the main underlying themes is that these types of things, you know, we have these capabilities and faculties that we use on a daily basis, like being able to perceive things around us and our, our sense of our self and uh, our physicality. And we take them for granted because uh, for many of us, they work the way that they should. But we experience something like a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, which you know we can't predict these things. And all of a sudden, our reality can be drastically altered in a, a matter of minutes or days. Uh, and so one of the themes I come back to is that it's important to not take these things for granted, that if your brain work, works the way that you want it to, then to, to appreciate that. I, I think another thing that I, I try to make a theme of the book, though, is that uh, I do talk a lot about a, a lot of, of individuals who are experiencing these types of conditions. And I, I try to emphasize that it's important to do that respectfully, because although these are very bizarre conditions and they're interesting to read about, they do cause suffering in, in many individuals. Uh, and so uh, it's important to remember that these are people that are going through these things and not uh, sideshow attractions or anything like that. Right. Absolutely. I mean, there is there is that curiosity aspect of this, unfortunately, at times that I think, you know, you're right. It is it is a very fine line. Do people recover? Does the brain heal in these cases ever? 
It does. And and I, I, I think in a lot of the cases that I talk about in my book, they do have kind of a happy ending um, because many of the patients do recover. But of course, it always depends on the, the type of uh, damage that occurs in the first place. It really depends on the individual. Some recover and some end up having to live the rest of their lives dealing with a new condition or a new reality. From where you sit as a neuroscientist, I mean, this is one of the many, um, you know, the brain is still, I wouldn't say it's it's not understood. I think we have, I mean, I, I, you, you'll know obviously much better than I do. But when it comes to understanding how the brain works, it strikes me that these are just examples of how much of a mystery the brain remains. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I think there, there's some things that we we do understand fairly well. Like there's some aspects of perception, like vision that we understand pretty well. But when it comes to to complex cognition, complex functions of the brain, we still have uh, a, a lot to learn. And one of the things that I use as an example of that in my book is, you know, most of the, the cases of, of brain damage, injury that occur, I talk about something that goes wrong. But every now and then we have a case of a person who has something like a traumatic brain injury and they develop a new exceptional talent. So I talked, for example, uh, about right. this guy named Derek Amato who uh, got a concussion when he, he dove into a pool and woke up from the concussion and the next day realized that he had developed this exceptional ability to play the piano. And now wow. that's his career. Uh, he had never played the piano before. Uh, and I give several examples of individuals like that. They're called sudden savants, uh, where they develop these exceptional skills after uh, some type of brain injury. And so those examples really, to me, demonstrate how much more we have to know because we don't understand at all how an, a hidden town like the, talent like that can emerge from the brain after some sort of brain damage. I mean, that that to me is is jaw-dropping, right? That you would suddenly pick up what is considered to be, I mean, maybe not the world's most complex skill, but certainly a complex skill uh, without ever having practiced once. I mean, that is that is phenomenal. And I guess it, our, our understanding of how the brain works has evolved uh, over time as well, clearly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we have learned a lot and, and, you know, especially in the last... 50 to 100 years, we've developed new ways of measuring brain activity, looking at the brain while people are, people are doing things and seeing which parts of the brain are active when they're doing them. Uh, we have, we've come a long way, but it, it also, we have a, a long way to go before I, I would be able to confidently say that we, we fully understand how the brain's functioning. It's not something that I've, I believe will happen in my lifetime. Right. What, what next? I mean, this is a, a journey of exploration for you and has been for a while. You've written books about it. What's next? Uh, for me, I, I you know I, I do a lot of things to try to help to spread neuroscience information to to other people, and so that's one of the things I do with my books is I, I try to to write books. I I like taking complex ideas and trying to make them easier to understand, and so uh, and I also have a YouTube channel where I do that too, right. where I make uh, videos, and so that's what I've gone to working on now is is making some more videos, and, and I'm sure eventually I'll, I'll go back to to writing, but I don't have a specific in mind yet. No, no one big question that you want to tackle next. Oh, there's, there's so many, right. <laughs> there's so many big questions, uh, and you know, there's, there's so much that we don't know. Uh, I, I'm amazed by so many different aspects of the way the brain works. I, I really am amazed by um, uh, addiction is one thing that I've studied uh, earlier on in my career. It's what I did my dissertation work on, uh, and so I, I, I do feel like somewhere down the road, I, I would like to write a book about. Uh, what happens in the brain when people experience addictions. Uh, we're coming to understand that addiction and any type of behavior that involves 
pursuing pleasure really involves the same neural circuitry, uh, whether it's from overeating to using heroin. And I, I think this is something that causes a lot of suffering in a lot of lives. And if we can come to understand it better, then uh, you know it has the potential to improve a lot of lives as well. Well, Mark, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great.